on this cold spring day. It's only 40 degrees in Chicago, of course, and then it'll be suddenly summer and too hot. <laughs> we have one day of spring in Chicago. So I want to share with you a piece of... Uh, all right, we'll start with the Rashi. So the Rashi is going on the verse in Leviticus 14 about leprosy. As you know, the leprosy can affect the body, your clothes, and the house. Now, it's really not leprosy. The possibilities of, of what it could be is legion. It could be psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, uh, dermatophyte infections, atopic dermatitis, pityriasis, uh, neurodermatitis, lichen planus, sarcoid, certainly not what we call Hansen's disease, which is mycobacteria uh, lepri. Um, but it became interchangeable with the word leprosy due to two inaccurate mistranslations. Saras was first translated into the Septuagint as leprosy in the 6th century and later was translated into Arabic as lepra in the 9th century. Uh, but let's call it leprosy for now because that's the way Arthur Scroll translates it. And so... It says, I will place a tsaras affliction, the nosati nega tsaras, and this time he's talking about the house. Let's go to the biblical text first. This is from the Posuk in our Sedra. When you go into the land of Canaan, Asher Anino Sein Lachem Laachuza, the Nosati Nega Soras. Now look at very carefully at the words Beveit Eretz Achuzaschem. This word Beveis, that's in the constructive, and you could translate it as I will place a Tsara affliction upon a house in the land of your possession. Beveis Eretz Achuzaschem. And you can see the trop. Venosati Negatsoras. Beveis Eretz Achuzaschem. So you see the trop, the 9th century Tiberian cantillation marks show uh, Mercha here, uh, which really implies there is a point of discontinuity. Even though it is in the construct, in the house of the land of your possession. But it could be in the house. Silly, that's the, the way the cantillation marks are. Okay, so let's share the screen for the Rashi now. So Rashi, Venasati negat Tsaras. Unlike until this point, Tsaras is considered an affliction. Mertzora, the Gemara says, is motzi shemra. That's where we get the ideas for lotion horror, it's for this or that. So we have a whole litany of complaints that why you might be afflict afflicted. Doesn't say it's in the biblical text, but rabbinics. And then comes this enigmatic verse: "I will afflict your house when you get to the land of Israel." And Rashi now quotes Torah's Kohanim. And Medrash Rabbah says, Busorahi lahem. This is good news. The affliction in the house turns out to be good news. Shehanagaim baim aleyem. When the afflictions are coming to them. Why? 
When the Amorites knew that the Israelites and Joshua were coming, they hid their treasures in the, in the walls of the house. Matmonius shall Zohov, treasures of gold, Bakiro spot am, in the walls of their houses. Kol arbaim shana shehoyu Yisrael bamidbar. It's a crazy metric. They said they are coming, and for forty years they're putting away two cents, three cents, a dollar here, a dollar there, a coal coin here. Go, put it away, put it in the mattress, put it in the walls. We have to hide it because when they come, they're going to want to take all our treasures. As a result of the affliction, what happens? Now let's go and explain exactly what happens by sharing with you the Midrash. This is the Nosati Negatsoras. This is the Midrash Rabbah in which we're told Toni Rabbi Chia, first generation Amoira, so early Midrash. Are you telling me it's good tidings? This is good news that the, that the house, you're coming to a house, Joshua's conquered the land, you're going into a house, you're telling me that's good news? That it because Shehanagaim Baim Alehem. Tony Rabbi Shimon Bayochai, the great author of the Zohar, Kivan Sheshamu Kananim She Yisrael Baim Alehem, when the Canaanites heard, Rashi's quoting directly, that the Israelites are coming, Omdu Vehitminu Mamoinim Babotehem. They hid their money in their houses, Ubasodos. That Rashi didn't quote that. He's quoting Torah's Kohanim. Doesn't say Ubasodos. In the fields and in the walls of their house. And now comes this amazing dialogue. God says, You know, guys, I promised their forefathers already in Deuteronomy 6, the first speech of Moses. That I'm going to bring you to the land flowing of milk and honey and it's going to be all good. Moses is saying this very enigmatic statement. Not only is the land and the field flowing with milk and honey, but your houses are going to be filled with good. What does that mean with good? So how does he show that there is good in the house? So he makes it that there are, there's Taras on the walls of the house. Now the Kohen has to, you go to the Kohen, he declares the house nothing. He has to go into quarantine. He doesn't come until after the seven days. Then Vuhuva Ella Koyen, you come to the Koyen, and then he declares, Oh my gosh, that brick, it's got Saras, take it out. That brick, it's got Saras, take it out. And behind the brick, you find the treasure. It's an amazing medrash that you're going to find the, the treasure in the house, in the walls of the house. That's what it means. You go to the coin and says, I see this. And 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 he and, and what happens? God had hidden the treasure behind the house. First of all, we have problems with this. I mean, 
we just got through saying that Saras is a bad thing. So why would the Medrash come completely against the Pshat and say, no, 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 this is good news. The Medrash is bothered about the word in Deuteronomy, by Mole Tov, Molotov. It's something that's good and that hasn't borne out in real life. Where's the good? Ah, yes, the good is here when you find these, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai finds these treasures in the house. It's a, it's a, it's a very cute Medrash. And I want to fast forward, because my, my theme these last few months is about betrayal, forgiveness, and trust. And I want to quote from the Pia Setzna. So we're fast forwarding two millennia. And we're in the Warsaw Ghetto, and it's 1940. So it's Pasha's Mitzoyra, April the 13th of 1940 in the Warsaw Ghetto. Now, I'm not the first one to said this. But I learned Eish Kodesh with my, my mentor, Hershey. And I'd read this in Nehemia Polin's book, Holy Fire. And there are a couple of papers since then in the 90s uh, that uh, have talked about the Pia Setzner's theological progression from 1940 to 41 to 42, where he then is... Uh, tragically deported from the ghetto as they were liquidating the ghetto and sent to Treblinka where he died six months later. This trajection follows the following path. In the beginning, what's happening to Am Yisrael, he says, it's just like every other calamity in Jewish history. Much like the Satmarov said after the war and most Orthodox Haredi thinkers, it's part of the Jewish history, part of the calamity. In 1941, however, after he lost his wife and his daughter and his son, uh, he was bereft of his family. It was illegal now to congregate and they, they did it secretly. He writes, there's never been a calamity like that. That's already the, the first time anyone ever said that in the Orthodox world. And after the war, uh, there were some, Eugene Borowitz, Emil Fackenheim, Berkowitz here in Chicago. These thinkers said, yes, this was unique. And I'm, I'm, besides the secular Jewish uh, narrative and the secular Zionist narrative, which is a, a different whole thing appropriating Holocaust I don't want to go into. In 1943, before he gets deported, he says, New Kabbalah which one day we'll, we'll talk about. So there is a progression from, this is just like every other calamity, this is the worst calamity ever to befall us, and new Kabbalah, that he is mechadesh, that's never been said before. So this is from April the 13th, 1940, and he says, when you come to the land of Canaan, on Pasha's Mitzorah, this is his Shabbos Drosha. I will place a mark of the leprous curse in the houses you inherit. Rashi says, this is an announcement that the plague would definitely come upon them and that the Emirates concealed all their treasures in the walls of their houses during the 40 years and they hid it so when Israel conquered Canaan, they would find no treasure. But as a consequence of the plague of leprosy befalling their houses, Jews would be forced to demolish the stricken walls and discover the treasure. The Piasetzna is bothered by what we were bothered by. 
When it comes to a person's body, that's definitely considered a curse. And then he has to bring a carbon. And it's not just a carbon, it's a carbon that has an a, a, a zov and a hyssop and an erez. And Rashi says the erez is the tallest cedar in Lebanon. Why? Because that reflected the punishment for his gasus ruach. He was arrogant. So let's bring some azov along with the carbon. And the hyssop and the tolar shoni, the little worm and thing, because he has to bring himself down. Mashbil ruach, he has to bring himself down, uh, the Gemara says. So when it, when it afflicts you, you have to bring a carbon after you're being made tahar. And you have to go shivas yomim outside the mat. You have to be quarantined. You go out and all the, the social disfigurement that comes with that. It's clearly, clearly something that is affecting you as a negative thing. And same with it affects your clothes. So how come with the house it's a blessing? Doesn't make sense. And by the way, the sequence is switched, right? In the Torah, it's uh, first the body, then the clothes, then the house. In the Gemara and Nagoyim, it's the other way around. Very interesting discussion to be had. Why the switcheroo? So the PSS is bothered by the same thing. How come it's such a brocha? Let's try to understand. If the plague is beneficial, so why does the Torah say you have to quarantine the house for seven days and only then let the Koyan come? And only afterwards, if the leprous spot persists on the stones of the wall, they're removed and replaced. Surely, once the leprous mark becomes visible, it's obvious that there's a treasure buried there. You promised me a treasure. And it should be even more obvious when the Ramban says that the leprosy affects the house and garments is an unnatural occurrence. The Ramban notes that. Leprosy affects the skin of the body. What's this business about affecting the clothes and affecting the house? That's totally me'ala teva. There's nothing to do with disease as we know it, infectious disease. Why then does the Torah tell us that the house is tome and ritually unclean for seven days? Very good questions. And so we can, now this is the Piyasetna talking. We cannot conceive of what the Torah intends with its mitzvahs. It's, it's beyond us. It's non-rational. But it's possible that there is a remez. We can, we can have a remez and now he dives into his own situation. We know and have faith that everything that God does to us, even when, God forbid, he is punishing us, is for the good. That's the axiomatic, classic Jewish philosophical position about theodicy and suffering. It's for our good. There are times, however, when we are smitten not only with physical suffering, but also with things that, God forbid, distance us from him, blessed be he. Ah, here is Pia Setzner. The classical Piyasetzner, the great-grandson of the Noim Elimelech, that's worried about the spiritual psychic effects of being smitten. The Rebbe is always worried about the psychological effects. There is no cheder for our children, there's no yeshiva, there's no shul to pray with a mikveh, there's no mikveh with a minion, there's no mikveh, etc., etc., in such times as this, God forbid, uneasy doubts may arise within us. Look how he's so psychological, a 20th century Rebbe. Psychological doubts may arise within us. How is it possible that even now 
God's intention is for our benefit. We're in the middle of the Warsaw Ghetto. We have nothing. We're bereft of Torah and mitzvahs. How could that be for our good? What are you talking about? It's counterintuitive. If it were for the good, surely he would be punishing us with things that draw us closer to him. And not with the annihilation of Torah and Tefillah, God forbid, and the end of almost all the Torah. I mean, that's very prescient, right? He knows what Goebbels is saying. <laughs> We're going to destroy the Jewish race. Is it possible that this is the kind of suffering about which is written in Deuteronomy? God drove them from their land with anger, rage and fury, and he exalted them to another land where they remain to today? That can't be. That's a promise that we will remain and now we're being annihilated. You know, this week was the Kiristira Rebbe's Yortzeit. He was the famous Rebbe who would hand out bread and he couldn't say no to anybody. So Goyim would come and knock on his door uh, for bread. And when he died, hundreds and hundreds of Goyisha villagers showed up at his funeral because he had been giving them bread every week. He had a bakery in his house and he was just constantly making bread. That was his avoider. One day, a guy comes to shul and announces he wants to commit suicide. No, the people could try. You oisvav, you're such a goy. What kind of business is this? It's a gemara in shulchan aruch. You're a day shin chav aleph. I'm a abe desatzman waladas. He's chayev. He doesn't get a proper burial. It's an issa diraisa. What are you? What are you talking? About? And they're screaming at him. And then the rebbe opens up his little window from his study and says, "What's the tumult?" And they get worse. They put him to shame in public and they say, this man wants to commit suicide. So he says, Kumaher. So the Rebbe sits him down and you would expect, like any rabbi, to go through the halacha and tell him how it's absolutely wrong. He doesn't do that. He says to him, tell me, Rebbe Yid, how are you planning to do it? <laughs> she says, oh, you know, I've been thinking about that, Rebbe. And I think I'm going to go to Lvov, to Lemberg, that bridge over the Dnieper River. And I'm going to jump from the bridge in broad daylight from the middle of the bridge. It's quite hot. So the Rebbe said, you know, I'm not sure that's such a good idea because I know that bridge. And there are rocks. And on the way down, you might break your head or get a fracture and you may not die. And you'll be bleeding and bloodied all over and you'll have lots of pain. Let's think about it. Come back tomorrow and give me a better idea. So he comes back the next day and he says, you know, there's a huge skyscraper in Lvov, in Lemberg. It's like six stories high that they recently built. I'm going to jump from the roof. So the Rebbe says, whoa, that's a really good idea. But you know what? It takes time. To, to reach the ground and on the way down people are going to be looking at you and you're going to be so ashamed of yourself it's such a bizoyan <laughs> that you're gonna it's a, such a bizoyanus before you die and they're going to be looking at you and laughing at you so the year says you're right so he says come back tomorrow Let, let's think of another right and he does that for a whole week every day he comes back to the rebbe and they're discussing and they're steiging how he's going to commit suicide and then he stops coming the Rebbe thought maybe he had committed suicide. The next week he comes to shul, he's davening, it's usual, everything's like back to normal. So they asked him, what, what are you talking about? You've been going to the Rebbe for advice, how do I commit suicide? 
What happened to you? He said, the Rebbe was listening to me. He understood me. He understood my pain. He validated my suffering. That's what I needed. I, I needed a Rebbe to hear my pain. It was his Yorzeit, the Kiristira. And I think that's what the, the, the Piasesna understood. I don't think anyone in the 20th century understood personally and on a, on a klal level what that pain was. So what makes this Torah in 1940 uh, special? Therefore, he says, it is explicitly taught in the Torah that even though the leprous mark on the house was Tome and could make people Tome, God still made it an instrument of good for the Jewish people. He is still having his faith that everything will be good in 1940. First, it was Tome for seven days and only then was the treasure revealed. And so the law states, a person must say, it looks to me Ke'ilu, as if it's like a leprous mark in the house. Ke'ilu, the Pasuk says. He goes to the coin and says, Ke'ilu, it looks like a leprous mark. And even if he's a scholar and a big Talmud Chochem and he knows the exact definition of leprosy, he's, he's learned with all the Rishonim and Achromim in the Mishnah in Nagoim, he still has to use the phrase Ke'ilu, like a leprous mark. For as we said above, a person is never able to tell what is happening to him, whether it is a curse or not. All he can say is it looks like a leprosy, like a curse. The truth, however, as the Torah announces, is that what God is doing with us is for the good of Israel and inside is a treasure. And that's what he says in such a positive note in 1940. But I'd take it darker. <laughs> and I was, you know, Breslovers learned Sipuri Maisius on Shabbos, stories of Rabbi Nachman. And I was actually reading the second, the, the, the Reb Nossen had published one uh, edition of Sipuri Maisius. And he got such flack because there's never been such a thing that someone's just going to write fairy tales and he goes in the first introduction to say the Rebbe felt he couldn't get through to you with his Torahs and his Hasidish Vorts. So he decided he's going to go back to Sipurim Mishanim Primordial stories. Some people think uh, Maskilim thought that he was hanging out with these Apikorsim in Uman and they were teaching him Greek myths and Grimm's fairy tales because there are some parallels. The truth is that was in um, 1801 and, and he wrote uh, in 1810, two years before he died, he was writing this already in 1801. So that is just bad scholarship. But there's no question that he is using mythical tales that are so powerful that they inspired, according to Max Brod, uh, Kafka's parables. Now, he got so much flack, Reb Nossen, his scribe, when he published them first, that he, in his second edition, he writes, he has to justify the fact that it's okay, it's okay to tell stories. <laughs> and he writes in his introduction, 
and the Baal Shem Tov, may his memory be for a blessing, said that you could be meyached yichudim, just like with Torah and mitzvahs, with these stories you could also unite the divine and the shechina because of the tale. And because the upper conduits, the shefa coming down, were ruined because of the long time we were in Golis, he could not repair them through prayer. He would repair and join, meaning the tikkun olam, by means of the tale, the Sipurim. And now, in the second edition, I'm going to quote to you what Reb says, quoting the Baal Shem. In this introduction, he again calls upon the Baal Shem Tov, as cited by the... Baal Shem Tov never wrote anything except one letter to Gershon Kito. So everything that we hear from the Baal Shem Tov is through his Talmidim. This biggest Talmud was the Toldus Yaakov Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Yasef Yosef of Polnoy. And he says he calls upon the Baal Shem Tov, as cited by the Toldos, in the strangest story. He's justifying Reb Nachman's story as being mild compared to this tale that he's about to tell you. He uses the story to justify the new tradition of telling tales that have no basis as yet within the Haggadic tradition. So this is a whole new Torah. It's a whole new genre of storytelling, not exegesis, that Reb Nossen is telling Reb Nachman that it's not something new. It's something that Reb Nachman got from his grandfather, great-grandfather, the Baal Shem HaKodesh. So I started looking, what is this strange story? And I, had, I, I couldn't find it. And with all the search engines, I found it. I found it. And it is the strangest story that I have to, to share with you. And the Toldus Yaakov in Pasha's Devorim, on the Posuk, How can I bear your troubles that we sing with the Nigun from Tishabav? He, the the Toldus Yaakov picks up on this, this connection between Golos and Kurban Bias with this Echa from Moshe Rabbeinu. The Nireli, because this is about. How long are we in Golis? Where is the betrayal? Is it coming from us because we're still sinners? Does that justify the length of the Golis? And the Toldus Yaakov is, uh, is living at the time of the Baal Shem Tov, the end of the 1700s, you know. And there are already millinery groups like the Frankists and the Shabtai Tzviniks that are saying, the time has come, let's do it on our own without the help. The Shamati Mimori, I heard from my Rebbe, the Baal Shem HaKodosh, Moshul L'Soyche Echad, the story of this merchant. So let me tell you the story. It seems that I've heard from my teacher a parable about a certain merchant who was at sea when it began to storm and it grew worse in the extreme until their lives were imperiled. So the merchant arises in prayer that he might be saved through the merit of his modest wife. We're going to come back full circle. That means I'm, 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 Rabboni Shloyla, my wife is such sneers. She covers her hair and she's, we, we have, everything is such with sneers and modesty. On her behalf, can you please save me? Now, there was an idol worshipping Goy present and he was struck by the merchants praying for, on his wife's modesty. And he answered, it's fitting to go to great lengths to praise her because she is exactly what I'm saying. She's very modest. 
So the guy says to him, you know, I'm going to make a bet with you. I'm going to go ahead and seduce her. What signs do you require for me to prove you right or wrong? And we'll make a bet. So he said, okay, she cannot be seduced. And the proof is she has a precious ring on her hand. And if she brings it, he would know that that's her, that he seduced her and he took her ring. And you'll prove it to me that I was wrong. They make a bet about his wife's modesty and her ability to resist seduction. So they agreed upon a certain monetary penalty that each would give the merchandise that he accumulated on that boat trip if his opponent won. So he went on to seduce her, but he couldn't get close to her at all. He came on to her several times saying he had a secret from her husband, but she paid him no attention. Uh, Isha Kshera. Finally, he hired her maidservant to steal her ring using several plots which he hatched. It succeeded and now he comes back to the merchant with her ring as a sign that he had won and he takes her merchandise away. So the man now comes home to his wife with an empty ship because he had betted her, her righteousness for the ring. The guy didn't seduce her, stolen the ring. So he comes home now with two things. A, he has no money, and B, he suspects her of adultery. And when the wife heard of her husband's approach, she adorned herself, went out to greet him with expressions of endearment and love they shared from good old times. None of this entered his ears. And she was amazed, not knowing why and whereof he had left off his love and affection. He accompanied into her house, but his heart was not with her. And he brought it about that he drove her away upon an unmanned ship at sea. He was Megarisha, didn't divorce her, sent her away like an Aguna. All this is the marshal of the Balshemtov that the Tolders heard from the Balshem. The husband changed his dress and language as though he were a sailor in solitary charge of that ship. She went along on the boat for several days without food or drink and begged the sailor, not knowing it's her husband dressed up, to give her some food to revive her spirit. And now he tests her loyalty to him. He doesn't believe the merchants. And now he's going to test it himself. So he said, if you kiss me, I'll give you a cup of water. She did so under duress. And then afterwards he demanded to have intercourse with her, which she did so under duress. She was starving. The day came when the boat reached the coast, whereupon she threw herself off the boat to escape him, jumping to the shore and seeking food. And this is what reminded me of today's Cedra. She found two trees, one of which, if the fruit be eaten, caused leprosy. And the second, if she ate the fruit, it would cure the leprosy. <laughs> I just love this. She's faced with a choice between two trees. Remember, I once said to you, there was one tree in the garden. Right? The Tohagan in the midpoint of the circular garden, there can only be one midpoint. So I've always said there was only one tree. 
So why are you telling me there's a tree of life and a tree of death? A tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Adam had double vision. There was nothing wrong with that tree. He had double vision. He was doing the splitting. So she sees two trees. One causes leprosy and one cures leprosy. She takes these fruits in her knapsack until she reaches the king's home in the guise of a man. Look at all these reversals that are occurring, right? He was in need of a remedy for his leprosy. So she prepares the medication and they give her a great fortune in payment. She goes home wealthy. She comes home and she finds her husband. And now she has the voice of authority and protests against what he had done to her by sending her away from home on a ship with an ugly sailor and that she had needed to kiss him and another foul thing because of the great pain to eat, etc. And now the husband was glad at heart over the greatness of her complaint and her modesty. And he investigated and it came out to light that the man had slandered her and had stolen her ring and the affair was cleaned up and he dealt with him severely and they lived happily ever after. It's a crazy dark tale. This is much worse than anything Reb Nachman would have said. And so Reb Nossin is using this tale. I heard from Reb Yaakov Yosef, look what he showed. And he was the Talmud of the Baal Shem HaKodesh two generations ago. And if he could allow this, that, that paved the path forward for us to justify Rabbeinu's telling Sipurei Masios Mishonim HaKadmonim. And what's the Nimshal? The Nimshal is that the lesson contained, as the, I'm quoting from the Toldus Yaakov Yosef. This is what he says, V'ha Nimshal, Yuvan. Oh my God. He says that mashal applies to everything in this world. The husband's mistrust, the betrayal of his wife, the fixing, her needing to take everything into own hands and the reconciliation, that paradigm of betrayal of trust the sense of betrayal, the complaint. This is Bechol in Yone Oilamazem Miemos Kechurban Adbias Mashiach Tzidkenu from the time of the Churban. So he is reframing this Moshal as a relationship between a husband and wife. Which husband? Which wife? Obviously, Klal Yisrael and the Rabbinish Loyalam. Bimhei Rabbi Omeinu, Omein Selah. And my Rebbe went up, upstairs, and saw how Michael, the protector, Michael, the angel of, protector of Israel, Himlitz Avur Yisrael, he was the Melitz Yosha, constantly cheppering the divine about what have you done? They're still in Golos. They're the woman on the ship. And everything you suspected them of. You suspected them of adultery with other nations. You suspected them of, turns out, was all shtus. So why are you still not reconciled with them? He used this as a marshal. My teacher made spiritual ascents and beheld how Michael, the grand caretaker of Israel, interceded on their behalf. 
and in the course of which of the exile, each of their debts is a merit for whatever they do negatively along the exile, which in other times would be culpable matters, it is only done to be able to arrange the wedding match, a well-versed scholar to give charity. They're only doing it for Shiduchim. I have to make a parnos, I'm doing it for Shiduchim. I'm Talmud Chochem, I have to make compromises with the Kasherus or whatever, the politics, politics of being a rabbi, right? I'm only doing it for that reason, in the course of which they are forced to, meaning that the woman being forced to on the ship by the sailor is because she's forced to, because she's starving. The chaste wife, therefore, is the Shrina, in the secret sense of an Aisha's Chayel, right? Aisha's Chayel, a Teres Balal. The Zoya says, this isn't about a woman in Mishle 31, this, even though we say it every Friday night when we make Kiddush. It's also about the Shechina. And the devil grows jealous and says, this is now well, when they have the temple and they have the sacrifices. But would you like to see what it's like when they're, on a, when, when they're alone with another man? When we destroy the temple, let me seduce her, the devil says. And through the agency of the maidservant, he steals the ring, which is the secret of the Shnei Azazel, the Se'la Azazel, the Se'la Hashem, the secret of the two goats. One goes to Azazel, one goes to the Beis Amikdash. This is the secret that kept us going, the secret of the two trees. And because of the sin of the other side prevailed. God somehow said, okay, let's test them the way he tested Job. So we destroy the temple in order to test us through Golas. And she was sent away on a ship and God, as it were, God, as it were, transforms himself into that holy name, Samael. And this is the secret of the confession of the complaint of the Shechina. When the woman comes home, that's the Shechina complaining to the divine. What have you done to me? That's an interesting mashal. Now let me just end with just my thoughts. And how do I tie it into the Metzoyer and the Matmonas? Remember, we started with, I'm hiding the treasure, Dafka, in the stones that are filled with Negatzaras. And we said that the Medrash says, unlike the body Tzaras, and unlike the, the clothes Tzaras, this Tzaras has a happy ending. It has a happy ending because I have to promise you that I will bring you to the land and you will find bite mole tov. The house will be full of good. What good? Okay, that's very nice. So let's go into the house and find treasures. Why do I have to relate it to tsaras and leprosy? And so I, I would like to suggest that this this story that the Toldus Yaakov brings that I just discovered by chance because of Rabbeinu's beautiful Rabnosan who uses it as a justification for the second edition of the Sipuri Masios, Mikonim Monim, that it's Dafka related to this idea. What kind of Faustian bargain was struck between the, 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 the Jew and the Goy on the ship? We readers thought that the pious man was invoking his wife's modesty for the divine intervention to save him from the storm. And now he's wagering her virtue away for the idol worshippers' fortune. Was he under duress? What would he gain by this wager except double his profit? To wager his wife for double the profit? And he says to the worshipper, it is fitting to go to such great lengths in her praise. Was this a response of pride? 
or real humility? Did he not know by that he was inviting misadventure by saying that so loudly? It might be understood that he lost his love to her when she surrendered her ring. So why not confront her then? Rather, he holds inside the resentment to the point of arranging her banishment to an unmanned ship. Why such cruelty? Did her sin justify it? And on board the ship, the cruelty of withholding her food is compounded by his further test of her virtue under such extremists. With her starving, he demands a kiss and then intercourse. She submits, but in doing so, does he not realize she's forever compromised by the very modesty he had previously invoked forever? She uses her ingenuity to jump ship, still not recognizing the sailor as her husband, even calling him in the ship ugly. But then finds these two fantastic trees, one poisonous and one a remedy. And this saves her, and from the remedy fruit she gains the fortune from a king, a king, who is cured from his mortal wounds by her fruits. The Shekhinah somehow fixes the divine, not the other way round. Yesterday the Rebbe said the Shekhinah is God's presence in the world. I would like to suggest from here and from all of Lakute Moran, which for me is a parish on the Tikune Zoya, that the Shekhinah and her consort are two equal parts within the divine, that the divine is split according to the Arizal. For those of us who are philosophically embarrassed from it, so we have to redress it by saying God is unapproachable, he's unacceptable, no, no way to approach him, and his presence in the world is approachable. That's a philosophical way of looking at this myth. For the Arizal and for Nachman, and certainly the way I read Tikkun Zoyar, the, the divine is equally split between Tiferes and Malchus, between Kaddish Baruch Hu and the Shekhinah. And so, L'Shem Yichad Kuchibrichu Shekhinah, when we do Torah mitzvahs, we're actually reuniting that Hieros Gamos, that sacred copulation, that sacred marriage. So is it possible that she now takes the upper hand with her ingenuity and cures the king? Meanwhile, she has disguised herself as a man. The reversal of husband dressed as sailor and wife dressed as man closes the circle of disguise. And we know that in, in the Zoya, that Isho Ateres Balo, that right now the woman is just the crown of the member of the Atara. But in the future, she will take over that male role. On returning home, she now lodges her complaint against her husband. But now she is the one who brings home all the wealth, not her husband. Yet he still has control over her, so that she needs to complain against his absolute authority, as well as his cruelty of the trial. And he is pleased. He is pleased by what? Her honesty? We are told the greatness of her complaint and her modesty. This double reason for his pleasure seems mutually exclusive. You can't be um, pleased by the complaint, which she tells him everything, and by her modesty because she tells him that she was seduced. What does that mean? That the complaint has a double-edged sword? And then this is the trigger for him to investigate the matter? Until now not? Why not investigate earlier? Did he not smell something fishy? Only now, after trying her himself and witnessing her modesty, surely not for she, in fact, succumbed to the sailor's demand for intimacy, 
So what satisfies him now so that he feels compelled to disbelieve the idol worshipper? Only her honesty about the facts of what took place moves him. So we are forced to dissect this mashal for its rhetoric and plot before we try to read the explication given by the Toldos in the name of the Baal Shem. Who comes out the hero? Who is the villain? Only after we read their characters fully and determine the archetypal figures they represent can we imagine the radical nature of this narrative over most other Hasidic tales that we have inherited from that first generation of masters and understand why this exemplar was used by Rav Nossen in his introduction to Sipuri Masias. It is a sad tale. It's a tragic tale. One with an apparently happy ending. It begins with the husband praying to God in the merit of his wife's modesty and ends with a happy husband whose wife has brought home a fortune. Fine. But what of her? What has happened to her in the process? The innocent victim of this trial, Klal Yisrael, implied by the Baal Shem, the innocent victim of Golas. What becomes of her inner emotional life after this trauma? What has been gained and what has been lost? And what happens after she complains about him by the way she was treated? Does he make amends? Does he merely feel well that he has a good wife and that she is safe because she passed the trial? What becomes of the relationship after the story ends? We're not told. And like other fairy tales, the mythical implications are resonating. When we read other traditional stories from around the world, we find that the things we value most highly and fear most deeply and hope for most ardently are the valued things that are feared, that are mirrored in the characters themselves who come to life in these tales. Ancient myths are stories evolving from cultures over centuries and are embedded in the fairy tales of those cultures and are embedded in Agadah and in Midrash. And when we read them closely, we explore and break them open. We invite our readers to the depths of the richness the story brings to our religious spirituality and our psychology. And so with that, the analysis is to concentrate on the characters before going to the Nimshal. Before going to the Nimshal. And so, like the sailor on the ship, in truth he was with us all along, like the sailor and his wife, and remaining content all refers to the secret of the exile of the Shekhinah, the Baal Shem Tov is telling us something very profound, and that something that is the trajectory beyond the Piasetzner's complaint that everything will turn out good. In our post-Holocaust way of looking at Soras, it's precisely the treasure that's in that brick that is filled with filth and dirt and represents the dark side. In this brilliant exposition of the Medrash to Eicha that the Toldus Yaakov pins this mashalod, Eicha Esol of Adi, which connects Moshe's complaint about Bnei Israel to the lamentation of Eicha and Eicha Rabbah, the complaint of the widow Jerusalem lying in waste, which connects each of the words Eicha to three separate prophets, 
Everything is congealed in order to show us the degradation of Galut. And the Toldos, by employing the Mashal of the Baal Shem Tov, his master, has stretched this object of Eicha running through from the time of the destruction till Bias HaMashiach as one long complaint and lament, substituting even further the Shechina for the people of Israel. No longer is this a lamentation of the prophet from the people of the city of Jerusalem. Rather, it is a lament of the Shechina and Klal Yisrael from her separation of her God and his betrayal of her. Not able to say it out loud, hidden in the mythic characters of the Mashal. The Master's Mashal becomes then for us an exegetical tool by which the substitution becomes quite radical. For now, it is all not about us and it's not about our suffering. It's about us carrying the divine split and the divine suffering. The story is all about God's biography, his schizophrenia. The exile of the Shechina is stretching through the Toldos, the rabbinic notion, way beyond the normal confines of tolerable theological discourse. And the Mashal gives him the license to place in the mouth of the Shechina the kind of protest unheard of, unheard of in previous ways. And so for me, this is the trajectory that the Pia Setzner is going on, which deserves its own discussion in the last year before he died. But this is what he was going on. The narrative of betrayal and trials, torture and rescue, complete and uneasy resolution. The ending leaves us, the next generation, uneasy. And so I leave you with this idea that it's a healing text. Because in the Mashal, we find ourselves, our own tortured selves, our own schizophrenic selves, our base selves split from our higher selves. And we go to the higher self and said, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? The whole thing was a setup. You set this up. And so I believe that this Mitzoyra, the, the message that the treasure found in that brick, we come back to the original the Nosati Negat Soras Beves Eretz Achuzach and the deep shot of that base, of that house, our house, that our house meaning our heart. I'm putting the Negat Soras right there, like the Tanya says, a little zvuv between the right side of the heart and the left side of the heart. There's this little fly, this gnat that oscillates between the Yetzir Tov and the Yetzir Horror. I'm going to put a nega right there in your heart so that once you, once you suffer it and you experience the betrayal and you find forgiveness for yourself and the divine and for all of us, you find there the treasure waiting for you. Have a wonderful week.